everybody doing? Good morning, Watermark. We're glad to be with you guys, Plano, and not Fort Worth, because uh, I am in Fort Worth, if you're watching this. I will be in Fort Worth at this moment with our new campus opening today. Hey, anyway, we are in the middle of a series called The Seven, uh, The Seven Essentials of Our Faith, and we're actually on the seventh one. There will not be another uh, part to this series unless we decide to add some other essential truth, which I kind of doubt that we will. You know, it's interesting, we went back, we did a series in the fall, uh, I think it was like 2006 or seven, called The Big 12, where we talked about 12 things that were essential for you to know. And we added a few things that were in there to talk about stuff that we were passionate about, and they're still true to go back and look at it, but we covered all these seven essentials that were in there, and it's just great to come back and remind ourselves about these things that if you don't get them right, it's gonna not allow you to be useful and fruitful and filled with peace and thrive the way that God wants you to on this earth. It's gonna cost you dearly right now, and it might cost you eternally. We've talked about the centrality of God's word. We've talked about uh, the nature and person of God. We've talked about how he reveals himself most fully in the Son, how he empowers us in the presence of God today, working in us and through us this is in the person of his spirit. We talked about who we are, creating the image of God. And we talked about how God saves man, even though man has left him and rebelled against him. But let me tell you, this is the truth. How you determine your eternal home uh, is, is based on a right understanding of the gospel alone. A right understanding of who Christ is and what he did on the cross. And that should have great effect on how you live here on this earth. And you won't live as fruitful and productive a life for him if you get these other things wrong. Number seven is this truth. It's just simply this, that Jesus Christ is coming again. Now there are some details about when he's coming, what will happen once he comes, that we'll have to talk about for a little bit, but let me just give you the statement that you can't miss. You've got to get this right. You've gotta be certain about the bodily resurrection of the dead, about the coming of future judgment, about the fact that Christ himself will come again physically, and the fact that uh, there is an eternal heaven and an eternal hell, or it's gonna mess with you. But here's the statement. We believe in the future and visible bodily return of Jesus Christ to the earth, commonly called the second coming, to rule the nations and establish his kingdom on earth. Now let me explain this to you, okay? Because there's some details about how this is all gonna work out. This is a picture of uh, Israel and the Mount of Olives, okay? I'll just show you this little picture right here. The Mount of Olives is to the east of what is called the Temple Mount. So this is looking from the west at Israel, kind of from a, a hover shot uh, down towards the Temple Mount. This is the city of Jerusalem right here. You'll see what is uh, the, the mount that was built by Herod that Solomon's temple was on and Herod's temple was on that's been destroyed. This is Al-Aqsa, one of the holiest sites in Islam. Now we know the Temple uh, uh, the Dome of the Rock right here is where the temple was. This is the Kidron Valley that runs right through here. And this is a hill here that's called the Mount of Olives. Now the Mount of Olives um, over here is Bethany and Bethphage. You know, if you read the stories about the end of Christ's life, you, you know that he left there and he walked down. This is kind of where his triumphal entry happened right here. And he came down and he came up and he entered under the Temple Mount and he went to where the temple was in that day. The scripture tells us in Acts 
that he ascended from right here with his disciples. And the scripture tells us in Zephaniah 14 and um, other places that Christ is going to return right here. It's why when you go there, you're going to find uh, that the Messiah will come on the Mount of Olives. In Zephaniah 14, it says that right here is a bunch of um, Jewish tombs and uh, a burial ground because they want to be there when the resurrection happens. Now, the thing is, is they better make sure that as a nation state, okay, that they come to understand who the Messiah is and who their king is. But let me explain a few things to you. I'm not going to get into all the details about uh, what exactly is the progression of events that will happen around his second coming. There are periods like the tribulation, an event called the rapture. There is this idea of the millennial reign, okay? And, and the reason I'm not is because I spent 10 weeks, 10 weeks teaching you through what is called the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse is in um, Mark 13, uh, one through the end of the chapter, 40-something, and then also in uh, Matthew chapter 24, okay, and 25, Jesus taught about his second coming on the Mount of Olives. It's called the Olivet Discourse because it was given right here. And I'm gonna read to you from it again tonight because it has great implications on why the doctrine of the second coming of Christ matters. But I wanna show you, we, are, uh, we believe that the best way to understand the scripture in some of the prophetic uh, passages that are in there pertaining to the second coming is consistent with what would be called a pre-trib, pre-millennial view. There's also post-millennialism, there's amillennialism, there's uh, pre-wrath rapture, there's mid-trib rapture, there's post-trib rapture, and all of those I covered in detail in that series in 2002 for 10 weeks. And there's nothing I said that I would change. Part of the reason that I wouldn't change anything is because I, I think we take this position with, um, and I'll show you a slide in just a moment. This is the series, actually. Here's some of the messages um, that happen. They kind of start down here. The purpose and product of prophecy, uh, the wonders of the world versus the wonders of magnificent people and matter and, and why we don't make ourselves obsessed with this world, um, and then prophetic terms, timing, persecutions, and promises, part one, two, three, four, and five. So if you're into these things, this is before we had video, you can go back to 2002 on our website, search under the last things you need to know. And there's 10 weeks on that. Now let me just tell you uh, this. Jesus thinks the last thing you need to know um, are not so much details about when he'll return, but it details about what you need to be doing. The reason I wouldn't change much about what I said right then is because I didn't set any dates. I'm not one of those people, and I don't think you should be either, that drapes the New York Times you know, over your Bible and goes, oh, this is that, and start to be very certain about when Christ is going to return. We know that no man knows when Christ is going to return. One of these days, one of these guys making predictions is going to be right. Because everybody keeps making predictions about when he's coming back. But for me, okay, I want to get off the planning committee and on the welcoming committee, all right? Christ's job is to return. Our job is to be ready. We have to be ready. It's why, when I did the Big 12 series, um, one of the things that I did is I, I every week, I took um, these core doctrines and I said, this is what we affirm. If you don't affirm this to be true, then this is the alternative to this affirmation about biblical truth. 
And then this is the application. And so back when I taught this um, almost 10 years ago, uh, I affirmed this. This is what you need to understand. Christ is coming quickly. His reward is going to be with him and he will render to men according to their deeds. The alternative is, no, he's not. It's fine if you want to keep going to church, sing your little songs, um, rehearse your little creeds, and enjoy whatever benefit, benefits come from living a, a moral uh, life and, the, and the, um, the long life that morality affords you. But I hope you're happy in your delusion. Because Christ is not who he said he was, or he's dead, he's not resurrected, or we're misunderstanding the scripture, and you don't really need to worry about the fact that you're going to be held accountable. That's the alternative. Now, the application is, because you affirm that Christ is coming quickly, that his um, reward is with him, and that he will re, uh, render to men according to their deeds, is that you want to get after it. If it is true that Christ is who he says he is, and we believe it is, if it's true, then you ought to trust him, obey him, serve him, you ought to endure, you ought to persevere, you ought to love your enemies, you ought to love him, and you ought to love others. There is a lot riding on the literal, physical return of Jesus Christ to earth. Now, let me explain to you this. I'm going to show you one little map. And again, I unpacked this for a lot of weeks. All right? Um, but this is what is called the pre-trib, premillennial view. Okay? And basically, this is what we believe is the best explanation for how... Um, how the, the end times are going to work out. And I talk a lot about what's called the 70th week of Daniel. I talk a lot about when Revelation talks about times, time, and half a time. I talk a lot about the Antichrist. I talk a lot about um, how this stuff could all happen. But bottom line, here we go. That, that there is, uh, right now, from 33 AD to the present time, we have the church age, or the age of grace. There's going to be a moment where the rapture happens, okay? We do believe that the scriptures indicate that there is a rapture event. It is the removal of God's church, God's people. Just like he removed Noah before the flood, we believe that, um, and again, this isn't an essential. This is where you need a lot of humility. The second coming of Christ is an essential. What happens up until then, there's lots of good discussion about. But the word rapture is not in your Bible. It's actually... Um, uh, a, a transliteration of a word that basically means to be caught up. And Paul talks about the blessed hope that we'll have, that we will be caught up to be with the Lord in the air. It's the removal of the church. I believe, and I talk about this, that, um, that the Antichrist won't be revealed, it says in 2 Thessalonians, until the restrainer is removed. What's the restrainer? I believe it's the presence of the Spirit of God working on earth. Where does God work on earth? Through his presence in his people. And you take away all folks who know the goodness of God and the rightness of his way, and you can imagine how dark and awful this place would be. Not just um, specific grace through his spirit, but even some of the common grace that is there. It's gonna get crazy. But there's an event that happens called the rapture. This is not the second coming. This is what I want you to hear. Us going to be with him. If there is a rapture event, if he does remove his people, that is us going to be with him. That is not him coming to earth. And so there'll be this event during that time. Um, 
if that is true, and again, I believe it's the most reasonable reading of scripture, that's when the church goes through what's called the Bema Seat. Stay tuned today, I'll talk about that. And then you're going to have the second coming. Okay, actually, what you'll have is while the church is in a sense going through um, the Bema Seat blessing in heaven, you have the tribulation period here, okay? Where this is the time of Jacob's distress, a time of trouble that Daniel talks about. This is the 70th week of Daniel. I know this stuff is absolutely foreign to 99% of you. But the seven-year tribulation period, halfway in there, okay, after the Antichrist makes a treaty with Israel, which starts the seven-year period, there is, um, there is a, a, the Antichrist shows himself. He sits himself on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and he says, I'm not just your deliverer. I'm not just a great world leader. I am God himself. Worship me. And that's when it gets really nasty because during the tribulation period, the first three and a half years aren't that much trouble other than we're trying to recover from where'd all these people go, all right? Uh, and Kirk Cameron, you know, walked you through that. So, um, <laughs> so anyway, here's where it gets really nasty. And then you have the second coming. Now, some people believe there is none of this stuff, okay? They just believe that... Uh, that, that Jesus is basically either going to establish his kingdom on earth through his church, and they're called post-millennialists, and there'll be a thousand years, basically, of the world getting it right, which, if you look at history, that doesn't seem to be where we're trending. There's what's called amillennialists, which means there is no literal thousand-year reign, and it's figurative speech in the scripture, okay? And Christ just comes, and they do away with all of this, and they just have Christ coming once right here. We believe that he's going to fulfill his literal promises that the second coming will happen right here at the end of the tribulation, and then Jesus will reign for a thousand years. Now, what you need to hear is this isn't even the beginning of eternity. The second coming commences um, Christ reigning on earth. There's a great judgment here. What happens is all the wicked are judged. There's a separation of the sheep and the goats. The, the goats, if you will, in, in Matthew 25, are the wicked that did not honor him, and they're put in a place of judgment. And we start this thousand-year reign with pretty much everybody on earth being a believer. And there's another great rebellion, if you can believe it or not. And at the end of that other great rebellion, okay, where Satan himself has been bound for a thousand years and man still rebels, you're gonna see our need for grace. You're gonna see God uh, roll this whole thing up. It's what's called the great white throne judgment and we move into eternity. By the way, when we move into eternity and go to heaven, Heaven will not be this place way out there. Heaven is a renewed earth. Okay, now there's tons there, and there's 10 weeks on it. Go get it. The last things you need to know. All I want you to focus on right now is this, the second coming. Some of this is the best we can do in understanding scripture, but you can't mess up the fact that Jesus is coming. And um, what I want you to know is to tell you that you need to watch yourself more than you need to watch for signs. One of the reasons um, that a lot of our friends that are Jewish in um, their descent miss who Jesus is is because they were looking for a Messiah that would come, that would deliver them from the oppression that they were under. Uh, last week, I talked at the end of my message about how um, Israel had suffered for a long time, first under Egypt, then they were put into a place of promise, but they never really walked with God obediently there, and they went through 
um, a lot of times where the prophets would come and rebuke them and tell them to get it right because they were a kingdom of priests and if God was gonna use them to represent himself on earth, they needed to be a holy people. And uh, after they kept ignoring the prophets, God wiped out about 80% of them or more, okay? Uh, Five-sixths of them. Uh, they went into bondage, Assyria, watch your world history, wiped out most of the known world, including all the tribes north of Jerusalem. About another 150 years later, then Babylon rose up, wiped out Assyria and came down and took the last two tribes, hauled them off over to Babylon. They were there for 70 years. And then Medo-Persia wiped out Babylon. Know your world history. And you'll find out that Israel was allowed to return. But when they returned and they rebuilt their temple, it wasn't the glory of the old temple. And, um, and, and they never were really satisfied. No more prophets came to them. It was 400 years of silence. It's what's called the intertestinal period in your Bible. And if you're here going, man, what is happening today? Don't worry. Hang in there, because it's going to get very relevant for you. But this intertestinal period had Greece. Alexander the Great wiped out Medo-Persia. They became the known powers. Alexander died. Uh, his kingdom was split up amongst his three sons. The Ptolemies in Egypt represented themselves. They were oppressive to Israel. The Israel's rebelled against them through the Maccabees. And there was a small period, uh, actually, when Syria had come and, and wiped out the Ptolemies. And then they rebelled. The Maccabees did against the Syrians. And then um, there was a little bit of period of peace and then Julius Caesar in Rome came and wiped out Israel. And it was just a sad time. And then Christ came. And when Christ was here and offered salvation, there was a day in Luke chapter 4. And this is where I want to start in the scripture today. There was a day in Luke chapter 4 uh, that we're told that Jesus presented himself in Nazareth. And so this is verse 16. It says, he, Jesus came to Nazareth. This is that period still where we're not sure anything great has happened. Israel's still in that intertestament period in their mind. And he's here in Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered a synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and he found the place where it was written in Isaiah 61, these words. Now watch this. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Just reading right out of Isaiah because he anointed me to preach the gospel, the good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set, those, uh, set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now listen, when your Bible was written, it didn't have chapters in verse. Those were added centuries later, okay? The reason they were added is because we no longer had scrolls and the uh, codexes were put together and eventually they uh, moved into book form and so we could all turn to the same pages in the book, okay, because there wasn't just one scroll that we read from, but we all had copies of the scripture. We put chapters and verses so we could turn there quickly together. But what Jesus did when he was reading from Isaiah 61 is really important. He stopped dead in the middle of a prophecy. Because he was saying, right after he got done with this, he just said, I'm here to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he shut the scroll and he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now listen, you knew Jesus was going to be um, well received by these people as he started his public ministry at this point because his first message was all of about 30 seconds long. It's a good way to make folks like you. 
But in all seriousness, what he said right there was, hey, this is who I am. This is what I'm here to do. I'm here to proclaim the good news, to bring healing and set captives free. I'm here to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now watch. Had he continued reading from the scroll of Isaiah, I leave Luke now and take you back to Isaiah to show you what Jesus did not read. What Jesus did not read out of Isaiah 61 in verse two, it picks up where he says, I'm here to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And had he continued, he would have said this, and the day of vengeance of our God. When I come to pour out my wrath and my justice against all those who rebel against me, which is a great comfort to those who seek to live in righteousness. And there were those that were trying to do right that, um, that were being oppressed by the wicked that were in the world or by those that scoffed at God and the fact that there was a God that we were accountable to. And Jesus said, I'm not here to judge all the wicked. Actually, I'm here to save all the wicked. And I want all of you to understand that your problem in first century Israel was not Caesar that was oppressing you, but the sin which reigns in each of your heart. That's what you're really in bondage to. And I want to set you free from that. And Jesus said, I've come to bring you hope. And I'm going to go and I'm going to be your Passover lamb. I'm going to be the scapegoat that the sins of the world are placed on. Isaiah 53 says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way. But the Lord's going to cause the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He said, it's going to happen to me. I'm going to go where you can't go, to the cross, to pay for your sins. God's going to make me, who knew no sin, to become sin on your behalf, that you might become the righteousness of God in me. God's going to make me poor, even though I'm rich. So through my poverty, you might become blessed and be reconciled to God. And then Jesus said to his disciples, Listen, here's the deal. The Jews are looking for a deliverer from Rome. The Jews are looking for a political figure. They don't know that their problem is not political. Their problem is that they don't have a relationship with me. They don't walk with me. And because they don't walk with me, they don't have my protection. And the thing that's going to allow them to be the people that will lead to blessing is for them to be reconciled to God. And they're not going to be reconciled to God by keeping their traditions and trusting in their own works. They need me as their savior. And so Isaiah has in the scripture the talk of Messiah as the one who will reign on earth and will bring peace to Israel. And all the nations of the earth will acknowledge that Israel's king is the one true king. But it also says that Israel's king, this Messiah, this prince of peace, was going to bring peace first by being a lamb who would bear the sins of the world to reconcile all who trust in him to the Father so that true peace might come. But think about that. What would you want if you were an oppressed people? Would you want somebody who's gonna come and live a holy life and then ultimately be beaten, died, and called a madman? Or would you want somebody who's gonna take on the powers of the world? That's what Israel was looking for. But Jesus says, I'm going to come again. Mark my word, this lamb that has come to be slain is the lion that will return. If you don't believe in the literal return of Jesus Christ, you don't believe in the biblical Jesus. You don't believe that he was who he says he was. Now, what did I say at the very beginning? I told you at the very beginning that Jesus is more concerned um, 
about you doing what you should be doing and not the details and the dates of his return. What I wanna do is walk you through the Olivet Discourse. And I want you to see how many times he tells you what you need to be doing, all right? I'm gonna use Matthew to do it. And it's gonna get us to a very strategic place that's gonna make this message have as much application to you as any message that we've given in this series. Here we go, watch this. So he's sitting on the Mount of Olives. Matthew 24, verse three. The disciples come to him privately. And they say, tell us, when will these things happen that you say are gonna happen? And what will be the sign of your coming? Because you told us you're gonna go die. You told us that they're gonna destroy the temple and that you're gonna rebuild it in three days. And you weren't talking about Herod's temple. You were talking about your body. But when are you going to come back and what's gonna be the sign of your coming? And Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And will this mean many? The Antichrist is going to claim to be God's gift to the world. So when there is a person in this world that tells you that they are God's gift to the world and they are God's Messiah and God's hope and that he's doing miracles, you should not be led astray. Now if we're right, us pre-trib, pre-mill people, and you know Jesus today, you won't even be around to be deceived. But in case we're not, you need to know that there are gonna be people that are gonna say, man, that must be God's man, that must be, that must be the guy, okay? And it's not going to be Jesus. Here's how you're gonna know. You're gonna hear of wars and rumors of wars, see that you're not frightened, for those things must take place, but it's not yet the end. For nations are gonna rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and they will kill you and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many. Because lawlessness has increased, most people's love will grow cold. Just, they're gonna think like, hey, there's no God. He's not gonna do anything. Look at all this immorality. Look at all this craziness that's happening. I guess I'm just gonna jump in on the party because clearly if there was a God, he wouldn't let this go on but the one who dures to the end will be saved. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Therefore, now he's talking about um, two people who are going to be on earth during this time. He's, he's being very specific, and he says, when you see the abomination of desolation, which if you understood the full scope of scripture, will probably happen halfway through the tribulation period, which was spoken of through the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. If you're on the housetop, don't go down and get a thing out of that house. If you're in the field, don't go get your cloak. You better hightail it out of there or he's gonna kill you because you haven't taken the mark of the beast because you're gonna say, no, you're not the Christ. You're the Antichrist and I won't bow before you. You better just hightail it to the mountains. You better let God uh, miraculously provide for you in the wilderness the way he did with people in the wilderness before when they were oppressed by an ungodly Pharaoh. That's his exhortation then. But he says in verse 21, there will be um, a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world. That's the last three and a half years of that seven year period I talked about. Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short because some are going to believe in the true Jesus during that tribulation. They're going to go, oh, those Christians that told us that they trusted in Christ, that's where they went. And this is what they told us about. 
and there's gonna be some that believe and don't bow to the Antichrist, all right? Uh, as I told you, we, Kirk Cameron's one of those guys, if you watch the movie, all right? So um, then uh, if anyone says to you, behold, the Christ is here, or there he is, don't believe him, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I'm telling you this in advance. So if they say to you, behold, he's in the wilderness, don't go. Behold, he's in inner rooms, don't go. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. You ain't gonna miss it. Now watch, verse 36, Matthew 24. Of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. So quit date setting. Um, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Therefore, be on the alert. For you don't know which day your Lord is coming. Now watch, I wanna tell you something. There are things that if my understanding of the scripture is correct, that need to happen before Christ comes again. But you need to know this. There is nothing that needs to happen prophetically or biblically for the event that we know is the rapture to happen. When Christ comes to remove his people, which will then commence the things that will unfold, the Antichrist coming on the scene, offering himself as a solution to the chaos that's in the world. He will make a treaty specifically with Israel. Israel will trust on him. This Antichrist happens to be the leader of what is basically the restored Roman Confederacy, which happens to line up with the current European Union. All right, He will keep folks from oppressing Israel. Israel will say, you're our hope. And for three and a half years, there'll be general world peace. And then he's gonna tell Israel he's not their hope, he's their God. And then all hell will break loose on earth. And then, three and a half years later, Christ will return. But he says, be on the alert. Be sure of this, verse 43. This is application for you and I now. Because even though Jesus is talking about the second coming, there is application for those of us who believe that he is going to remove his means of grace on the earth, which is where God is working today, which is through his people, the church. There is nothing prophetically or in the calendar of scripture that needs to happen before Christ removes his people. Could happen at any moment. Be on the alert, he says. Be sure of this, verse 43, that the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming. He would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must also be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is the slave whom his master finds so, him so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But if that slave is evil in heart and says, my master's not coming for a long time and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards, that master of that slave will come in a day when he does not expect him at an hour which he does not know and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh Uh-oh. 
Now let me just read you this. We're going to take you to 1 John for a second. We're going to come back to the Olivet Discourse. In 1 John, we're told to not love the world or the things that are in the world. If people love the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life are of the world and not of the Father. That's 1 John 2, 15 and 16. But then we get to 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, and he says this, now little children, abide in him meaning walk with Jesus, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. I want you to realize that again, church, listen to me, I I, I fervently believe that when Christ comes, it will be really our being caught up to be with him if you're part of the church and not his coming, okay, okay, The second coming and the rapture are two different things. If there is no rapture, then it'll just be a second coming, which is primarily what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24. But there's nothing that needs to happen before Christ removes us, as Paul writes a little bit later. All right? He tells the Thessalonians, hey, some of you guys are causing trouble because they think the Antichrist is already in the world. He says, no, the Antichrist can't come until the restrainer is removed. So there's a lot of debate about what the restrainer is. There's... Other scripture um, all through that talks about this blessed hope of the believers, which I believe is a removal before the ultimate tribulation on this earth. And there's going to be a day when we're going to be caught up in the twinkling of an eye. We shall not all die, the scripture says, but we shall all be with him. I think it's talking about the rapture event there. Now watch. There's application. If you know that he is righteous, church, You know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. In other words, if you're God's child and he's a righteous God, live righteously. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God that's talking to us, church, and such we are. For this reason, the world doesn't know us because we're not of this world. This isn't our home. We live with a completely different mindset. We see something the world doesn't see. We have a hope the world doesn't have. We have a morality, therefore, that is not familiar to the world. And we know that Christ is coming, he will have his reward with him, and he will render to men according to their work. And we know that because we are his sons, we are going to act like we're members of the family and be about the family business. What's the family business? The family business, well, what did our older brother do? Jesus, while he was here. Well... Christ suffered, leaving an example for you to follow in his steps. Who though he he committed no sin, nor was any uh, deceit found in his mouth, when he reviled, he reviled not in return. When he suffered, 1 Peter says, uh, he did not utter threats, but he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges rightly. Paul says, church, you are here to complete what is lacking in Christ's sufferings. What's that mean? It doesn't mean that Christ didn't finish paying for our sins on the cross. No, God is still here. Just as the Father sent the Son into the world, the Son said to his disciples, I'm sending you into the world to love them, not for comfort. This world isn't your home. But you are my hands and feet. My spirit is going to dwell in you. The works that I did, you're going to do. Even greater works than these because you're going to be all over the world. And I'm going to let you here to suffer just like I did. 
I'm gonna leave you here to be called a madman, just like I was. I'm gonna leave you here to steward your life for the glory of God, because I love people. And before I bring judgment on the earth, I wanna bring more good news. The day of vengeance is coming. I will return. But I'm leaving you here for a while, children, who know me, because I love others. Watch, this is First John. He says, beloved, now we are children of God. It's not yet appeared as what we will be. We won't see, we don't know fully yet how glorious it's going to be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has his hope fixed on Jesus purifies himself just as he is pure. Let me ask you a question. Is your hope fixed on Christ? Or are you going, no, this world's kind of my home. I'm making this my home. I'm not really serving him right now. I think I'll just be about my business, not the father's business. People that are here on earth and still about their business and not ambassadors for Christ, not suffering for the kingdom, We talked about salvation last week. And I want to show you a little tree. It's a salvation tree. It comes back now to Matthew chapter 25. In Matthew chapter 25, um, Jesus tells some stories. And one of the stories he tells is the story um, of a man that is uh, going to go away and going to return and is going to um, basically... Uh, hold people into account for what they did when they were gone. Now, let me just say something to you really quick. I want to read this to you, okay? Uh, this is Matthew 25, and, uh, and we're gonna, we'll pick it up long about verse 14, all right? And it, it says this. It says, for it's just like a man, he's telling a story, about to go on a journey, who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another he gave two, and to another he gave one, each according to his ability, and he went on his journey. Now listen, this should encourage you. This is Matthew, tw Matthew 25. Here Jesus tells the story of what's called the parable of the talents. In the parable of the talents, he gives them different amounts of his blessing. What I want you to be encouraged by this, by, this is, uh, by, by here is this. In Matthew 25, where we're given five talents and two talents and one talent, we're given different things, whether that just be human giftedness or maybe even physical resources to use for his glory, how you use your two, if it's as faithful as the guy who used his five, you get the same reward. Where there is unequal distribution of gifts, there is equal reward. In Luke 19, it's what's called the parable of the meanest. Amina is basically a hundred days wage. He gives in that parable three different guys the same thing. Where you are given the same thing, okay, there is variant rewards. Where we're given different things, there's the same reward. So I want you to hear this. Some of you are not 10 talent people. Some of you don't have the means to advance the gospel the way very gifted people do or the way very well resourced people do. But it doesn't matter. If you're faithful with what you've been given, you will get the same reward for a billionaire that walks and lives like Mother Teresa. This week I was with um, Evander Holyfield. And, um, and Evander travels with 
uh, we were at the same event I was speaking at, and Evander was with a young man named Chester. Now, Chester is his handler, basically, because Tyson didn't just beat his ear. A lot of people bet, beat Evander's head, all right? And, um, and even though he's a four-time heavyweight champ of the world, and because of that, he didn't travel alone for good reason, but he's got Chester with him. Now, Chester was an interesting guy, and I sat there and talked to Chester, and one of the things that Chester told me, he said, man, my dad was 47 when he died of a heart attack, but my dad was a very... He was a well-known man. My dad was called to the White House by two different presidents and recognized by those presidents and commended and given honor. My dad um, pastored a church in the 70s that grew to thousands back before there was really megachurches. My dad died of a heart attack when he was 47. He goes, I'm 46. And really what I'm doing now is I'm, I'm, I'm walking around and managing and handling Evander. And I sometimes wonder, God, I don't look like I'm living up to the standard of my daddy. And he said, I was just laying in bed one night and I was grieving that I wasn't these things that my dad was. And he said, the Lord said to me, not in an audible voice, but Chester looked at me and said, you know what the Lord said to me, Todd? I said, what did he say to you, Chester? He said, Chester, what I've given to you is enough. Just you be faithful with what I've asked you to do. Now I believe if that's what God wants Chester to do and he does it well, he's gonna get the same reward as people that are given the Congressional Medal of Freedom, as Mother Teresa, as Billy Graham, as D.L. Moody. So I want you to hear me. Where there is unequal distribution of gifts, there is equal reward. Where there is equal opportunity, there is variant reward. And you better believe that Christ is coming, he has his reward with him, and he will render to men according to his works. Now last week I talked about salvation. Salvation is a free gift offered by God, but there's gonna be some people who say, not thank you, Lord, I don't think I want your salvation. I don't think I want anything to do with the grace that you're gonna offer me. Those people, it says, will be judged based on their works because they've rejected grace. They say no, so all you can do is offer your own life. Here's my resume. And the Bible says that your resume better be perfect, but all men have sinned, and because the wages of sin is death, all you're going to experience is judgment, and that judgment is final and complete, and it's going to be where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. I did a series called The Most where I just took different verses and said, this is the most important verse, the most essential verse, the most short verse, the most um, difficult verse to interpret, the most misinterpreted verse. This is the verse in the Bible that I think is the most awful verse. Second Thess 1.9. People that say no to God's offer of salvation that I talked about last week will have nothing to offer God. But there's going to be some who say, yes, please, to God's offer of salvation. Yes, please, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. By the way, that's all hell is. Hell is a place that God doesn't rape anybody. He grants to you what you ask for. If you say, I don't want what you've offered to me, I don't want anything to do with you, then God says, well, great, I'll let you go to a place where there'll never be anything that will remind you of me again away from my presence and my glory. That, my friends, is hell. But for reasons that we can't explain, for some of us, the Lord is going to give us the grace to understand. This is people who say, yes, please. 
And those people who say yes, please, are gonna be folks who accept salvation by grace through faith. And these folks, it says, uh, will, will come down and they're gonna be no longer judged because you know, judgment is always based on works, but what we're saying is not my works, but his works for me. Christ died for me. So let me say this to you. In the Bible, judgment is always based on works, but salvation is always based on grace. People that don't want the grace of God have nothing to do except be judged with what they have to earn salvation, and they can't earn it because God's standard is perfection. Those of us over here who say yes, please, to Jesus being the one who was judged, being the one who went to the cross for our sins and received grace, we're still going to be judged. You're still going to be judged. But you're gonna be judged not as a son because you become a son through grace. You'll be judged as a servant. In other words, what did you do once you became my son? Were you a faithful son? This is Matthew chapter 25, verse 21. That parable that I told you, there's five, there was two, there was one. There was two that did well. And so he said, well done, good and faithful servant, enter in. You've been faithful with little, I'm gonna give you much. But there were some who didn't do well with that. And he says to them, depart from me. And he sends them away and there is a sense of loss. Those people who don't do well as servants, the Bible talks about them in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 15. 1 Corinthians 3.15 says, if you don't build on the foundation of grace by walking in faith and being a faithful servant, when you're judged as a servant, you will not receive a reward. Your work is wood, hay, and stubble, not eternal things. And so when the fire of God's judgment evaluates how you stewarded your life, it's not going to lead to reward. Now, people who don't believe that Christ is gonna judge us aren't really too concerned that they're gonna to respond to grace. They just kind of take grace and go, I'll just do enough of it in a little bit, and you're missing out on the blessing of being faithful. But let me just show you this. There's another part to this salvation tree that I want you to see. There are some people who say, yes, please. I want salvation. These are people in Matthew 7, 22, that Jesus says to them, hey, you know what? You said, yes, I'm Lord, but you had a true false faith. You had a demonic faith. I even used you for my glory. Um, you uh, cast out demons in my name. You prophesied in my name. You did miracles in my name, but depart from me, for I never knew you. You were deluded, all right? You practice lawlessness, even maybe in doing things that were done in my name. You're just a professor about me. You don't possess my spirit. And Jesus says, these people are going to be judged as imposters. Now, let me just tell you this. Most of you that are here <laughs> go, yeah, Todd, I, I believe it. You know, I, I, want, I want to be who Jesus wants me to be. You definitely don't want to be here. And friends, you don't want to be here. Because you believe that Christ is king and he's coming again and his reward is with him and he will render them to men according to their deeds. You know you won't be judged for your sins, okay? Because Christ was judged for your sins. But now you're his servant. What kind of son, servant will you be? Last illustration. My daughter hates this illustration. She gets mad at me every time I use it. I love doing weddings. My favorite part of doing a wedding is right before the bridegroom is revealed. 
excuse me, the bride is revealed to the bridegroom. I'm standing there with the bridegroom. We're back there, the music starts, right? And uh, I mean, it's just awesome, okay? And whenever I do a wedding, as the music starts, um, I always, waiting, there it goes, yeah, right? I always tell the, the uh, wedding coordinator, don't open the doors at the moment where it builds, right? And it's supposed to make everybody wait, like we want to see the bride, right? I mean, I love this moment. So she's back there, right? And we're ready. So we're standing up there, we're watching. Imagine Jesus, our bridegroom, is watching you. He's waiting for you for the Father. Say, go, return, bless them. Oh man, it's coming and Jesus is ready. You know he's ready. And you are his bride. And you're back there. And the doors of heaven will be open, the clouds will be rolled back, and here comes Christ. Have you purified yourself? Are you ready for his coming? Imagine your bridegroom is there. The bride's waiting, and here comes that moment. Boom, and we open up. And you go, oh my gosh, what is she doing? She was my bride, and she's making love to somebody else. Can you imagine that moment, that horror, that she pushes her dress down? And comes out. But see, this is what it looks like. Kill the music. Right? What you want when Christ returns, you want him to find you being about his business, being devoted to him. You want him to see you in the word and being a student who's studying what it is that he loves. You want to see um, yourself in prayer. You want to see you in, in these images there. You want to be that guy. You want to be in prayer. You want to be in community, loving other people. You want to be sharing the gospel with other folks. You don't want to say, I'm your servant. You died for me. I'm going to live for you and find yourself obsessed with, with, um, with things of the world, obsessed with your college football fantasy. You don't want to find yourself obsessed with work. You don't want to find yourself obsessed with your iPhone. That was the family that was sitting next to me at dinner one night. All of them. <laughs> Instead of shepherding your family, let's just all, all four of them. You don't want to be this guy. Sloth not laboring faithfully. You don't want to be somebody who's sitting there in front of a computer screen looking at images that need to be blurred out. You don't want to play five more games of Fortnite, take on Ninja. That's for the section over there. <laughs> you want to be anything but this. Folks, your king is coming. And today is the day that he has given you. Let me just tell you that I am asked a lot, Todd, when you get to heaven, what's the first thing you're gonna ask God? And I'm gonna be certain. I know the first thing I'm gonna ask God. When I know him as I am fully known right now, I know the one thing that I'm gonna want more than anything else is I'm gonna say, oh my gosh. All the glory I preached about, all the glory I believed in, all the grace, all the, all the power that you had, all the love that you showed, I see it's true. I don't live by faith. I see it's true. Would you give me six more hours? Would you somehow just resuscitate me? Send me back. Give me 24 more hours. Let me not be deluded with the importance of college football or my kids' sports or more money or more comfort. Oh, let me go. Tell the world of the glory of who you are. Let me be your servant for just a little bit more. Because now I know that I'm just here to share in glory with you. Let me go and be a little bit more faithful. I guarantee you, the first thing I will ask God when I'm in heaven, when I see it, is Lord, let me live a radical life. And guess what? I have that privilege today. 
The answer to the first prayer I'm going to have in heaven is being granted to me today. This is my day. To be a servant of the one who died for me. This is my day to get to know him more. This is my day to love his people. This is my day to share his story. This is my day to use the resources he's given me for his glory. I am living today in the very first and most passionate prayer I will ever pray when I'm in the presence of my God. Let me serve you. What a privilege. You better believe that he is coming and his reward is with him to render to men according to his deeds. You will be judged, sons. Your sons because Jesus was judged, but servants will be judged on their works. I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna listen to a song and then we're done. I want you to listen to the song. The song will talk about a story that Jesus tells in Matthew 25 about a bunch of virgins that were supposed to trim their lamps and be ready. Jesus' job is to return. Our job is to be ready. Father, I pray that today's message and this series would be useful to us, that we see that your Bible is a record of your love expressed in history, of the God who was slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, who demonstrated his love through his son, who gave us the gift of the spirit that we might be useful and fruitful for you because we are men trapped in our trespasses and sins that your glorious son Jesus saved us from the death that we deserve and you will come again and you will have your reward with you and you will render to us according to our deeds. Help our deeds to be glorious. Help us to be faithful brides clothed in righteousness of the works of faith. We thank you that we're gonna be clothed in the righteousness of the works of Christ. We thank you that we're saved by grace through faith alone, but Lord, may the faith that saves in our life not be alone. In Jesus' name.